Hello and welcome to the Achieve Your Goals podcast, the show that empowers you to wake up to your full potential and achieve your biggest goals and dreams. I am your host, Hal Elrod, and I invite you to join us each week as we share actionable strategies to take your life to the next level, as well as interview world-class experts and entrepreneurs who have achieved extraordinary goals themselves, and we ask them to give you a peek behind the curtain and teach you exactly what you need to do to do the same. Ready? Here we go. Achieve Your Goals podcast listeners or goal achievers. John Berghoff here, standing in for Hal Elrod this week. Again, if you and I have never met, you can always go listen to episode 152, where Hal handed over the reins, at least for a period of time while he heals and recovers. I'm super pumped to tell all of you, he's doing really great right now. If you haven't heard this, Hal was diagnosed last October, it may have been October, November, with a very rare form of cancer. And he's now going through his fifth or sixth round of chemo, which is crazy. And it's positive because he's doing really well right now. I just talked to him about five minutes ago. Hey, before I tell you about this week's episode, it's a conversation I had at our last Quantum Leap Mastermind meeting with Jay Papazan, the author of The One Thing. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with his work. Just a couple of shout outs. So first of all, a number of you joined us last week in Cleveland for our inaugural LEAF certification. LEAF stands for Leading with Experiential Appreciative Facilitation. And really what that is and what we taught and what it's all about and what that community is, is a story for another episode I'll probably do in a few weeks. But the short of it is, we really believe, I believe that the world is calling for really brand new methods and new motivations for what it means to be a leader or an entrepreneur that leads a team or an organization of any size. And, and that certification last week was nothing short of awe-inspiring the certification participants that we had from around the world. We had executives there from the Cutco Corporation, from Keller Williams, from award-winning digital marketing agencies. And then we had a variety of entrepreneurs there from all around the country and Canada. It was an amazing experience. If you were there, thank you for creating memories that we will have for a lifetime. Again, that's a story for a future episode where I'm going to talk about what I would call the future of leadership, what the world is calling for. And we're seeing a real attractiveness to what it means to lead groups, small groups, and really large groups to bring out the very best in groups all at one time. So that was awesome. That was just last week. Two more shout outs. First of all, John Vroman, and we did an episode that was released back on March 1st about transforming your life with the art of moment making. Johnny V, his book, The Front Row Factor, came out a couple weeks ago. It immediately became a bestseller on Amazon. And I've seen a ton of chatter within this community. If you have not picked up your copy of The Front Row Factor, you've got to go grab not one, but three or four of them because it is one of those books. It's a very rare book where when you read it, you realize, I need to give this book to everybody that I know. And it's not often that I find a book where I feel compelled to share it with everybody that I meet. So the front row factor, you got to check it out. And if you checked out our episode on April 5th with David Osborne, we talked about how David has built his empire and his wealth with his life philosophies, which he also just released in a book. And I could be totally incorrect in this, but I feel like I just saw somebody post something that his book has actually become a Wall Street Journal bestseller in the first several weeks. I don't know if that's true. I do know that a ton of copies have been sold. Wealth Can't Wait. Wealth Can't Wait. 
And it's really about both the methodologies and the mindsets around wealth building. You've got to check it out. Just like the front row factor, Wealth Can't Wait is one of those instant, timeless classics. Last week's episode was maybe one of my favorite that I've gotten to do since I've jumped in here to stand in for Hal. It was with Ryland Inglehart, the chief inspiration officer and co-owner of Cafe Gratitude. And Ryland talked about the history, the story of Cafe Gratitude, and really how it is that they have gamified making their business a force for good in the world. So if you're an entrepreneur and you run the smallest or the largest business, you have to go check out the conversation we had with Ryland. It was one of a kind. I promise it'll leave you inspired. And now for today's conversation, here's what you're listening into just so there's no cause of confusion. We ran several weeks ago, we had one of our two live retreats that we do with a private mastermind group called our Quantum Leap Mastermind. And at that mastermind, we bring in world-renowned thought leaders like Jay Papasan, the author of The One Thing. And I had a conversation with Jay and we talked about not only the one thing, but we really quickly transitioned to what he is most interested in right now. And if you know the story of what Jay has done with Keller Williams as Gary Keller's writing partner, you really would be intrigued to see what it is that Jay is most interested in right now. And I'll kind of spill the beans just to give you a clue. He's really interested in how to go beyond productivity to helping entrepreneurs to become even more purpose-driven in their work. So you're going to hear a conversation that we had together, and I hope you enjoy it. By the way, if you have any feedback or there's anything that you love about these episodes, feel free to let us know. Share it on Facebook. You can always tag myself. Just tag me. Become my friend, John Berghoff. You can tag Hal. Forward your thoughts about these episodes to your communities. Help to spread any of the good work that we're doing so that you can add value to those in your network through the efforts that we are making. Hope you enjoy this conversation with Jay. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Hey. Many of you already know and are fans, co-author of The One Thing and many other well-known books. Can we give a huge QLM warm welcome to Jay Papasan? Let's give it up. Hey. Jay, uh, thanks for being here, man. Oh, I love this. This is great. I love uh, house communities, all of them. I've been just blown away at the way y'all build community and bring value to people. So I'm super privileged to be a part of this. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, this group here... This is like a special part of Hal's community because you know his book, he gave us like a peek behind the curtain this morning, a couple hundred thousand people on his audience. It's growing. It grew 12,000 people last month. And this audience here represents a group of entrepreneurs that are the most committed in that community to supporting each other, taking things to another level. And it's why we brought you in here because your work has made a huge impact for this audience in the world, people that are serious about taking things to another level. And I want to ask you about some of the principles in the one thing. I know many in here have read it. It's probably a handful who maybe haven't. Can I ask, show of hands, how many people are familiar with the book, just so we have a sense? All right, so we'll just talk to this one guy right here. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. No, we got it. That's awesome. No, thank y'all. That's awesome. And I don't know about y'all, but like I read The Miracle Morning like twice, so it's always good to go back through. And hopefully, if y'all have specific questions, we can get them answered today. Yeah, that's cool. That's really cool. Hey, before we get to the book, yeah. I'd love to hear the story of how you got connected with Gary Keller. How did that happen? Yeah, um, so 
my wife and I met in New York City. And I'm from the South, originally Memphis, Tennessee, and I was kind of missing it. I mean, I love New York. That's where publishing happens. But it wasn't a great lifestyle to start a family. So we got married. We both agreed that we wanted to go somewhere else, bypass five months of backpacking in Europe. And we just picked Austin and moved here without knowing anybody or hmm. having jobs. We came what, for one weekend. Do you weekend. remember what year that was? Around what? 2000. 2000. So it was in 2000. We visited in February or January. And coming from New York City to Austin, Texas in winter... You know, I had an overcoat on the plane and like I had no clothes. And I remember going barefoot in Zilker Park and we were just wandering around and someone came up and they had like a leftover half of a six pack. Like, do you want this? We've got to go to work. And I'm like, you're drinking and you're going to work? <laughs> and uh, we just sat down and drank the rest of the six pack and we're like, this is an awesome town. We're moving here. <laughs> and so, so great. Um, I messed around for about seven or eight months freelancing. I got an article in Texas Monthly. Got a couple of high place stuff, Memphis Magazine, which was the big magazine where my hometown, usually soccer stuff, because I'd done a book with Mia Hamm. And then my wife kicked me out of the apartment because I'm a huge introvert. Yeah. And in a town where I knew no one, I knew exactly no one after six months, except for the people that my wife worked with. Yeah. And she's like, you got to go out and meet people. So she's like, go get a job. And I was applying for writing jobs, and I thought I would get a job in technology. And a little, like I'd never heard of them, a little company called Keller Williams needed a tech writer too in their technical department. And I applied and I had published like 15 bestsellers in New York. And this little company, I went through five interviews with two behavioral assessments. I mean, the Keller Williams people know our process. There was only 27 employees back when I joined. I thought it was a front for the CIA, no lie. <laughs> I was like, there's no way this is a real estate company. There's just no way. Yeah. And I bounced around and about two years later, I saw one of our tech writers working clearly on the cover of a book. And I thought he was freelancing. I said, what are you working on? I, mean, I just was like hungry for books, having been out of that world. And he said, don't you know, Gary Keller and our old co-author Dave Jinks are writing a book. I'm like, no way. And then I ran into Gary Keller in the bathroom. Again, there's only like 30 employees at this point. Yeah. And I said, Gary, hey, I hear you're writing a book. Do you remember I used to work at HarperCollins? And he kind of did a double check. And was like, clearly he'd forgotten that. And he said, come in my office. And we went in and he laid out a vision for writing 13 books. So not just one book, he had a vision. And the first book was going to be a book called The Millionaire Real Estate Agent. And he gave me the whole pitch. We're going to interview the top people in our industry, see what they have in common. And he goes, how do you think that book will do? And I said, well, how many real estate agents are there? And at that time, they're like 700,000. I said, if you do really, really good, it'll sell 50,000 copies. That was just my honest assessment. Yeah. Just for the record, it sold 100,000 the first year and it's now sold more than a million copies. So I totally believe that. Yeah. <laughs> that part of the interview, I failed. But he's a model builder. He doesn't like to just fail his way forward. I think he's learned enough from his own mistakes. So he and Dave had gone to a bookstore. This is the longer version than you anticipated, I That's think. Great. And he had five books that were their favorite how-to books. And they wanted to seal elements of all of them for the first book. And one was... Good to great. He loved the executive summaries. The Millionaire Next Door, have y'all read that book? Fabulous book. And he loved the idea that they interviewed a whole bunch of people and asked for what do they have in common. A book that I can never remember the name. I really, honestly, it's like it's this black hole. I can see all the books laid out on his desk, but that one. <laughs> and the last, it's probably because I was already looking at the last two. Yeah. And it was Bill Phillips' Body for Life. It was a weightlifting book. And Mia Hamm's Go for the Goal. And he started to tell me about those. And I was like, I published those two books. 
And that's like the luck, right? So I showed him my name in the books and it was pretty much the next day I was in the advanced interview for the job, meaning I was writing a business plan for how we would write and publish a book. Yeah. And about 120 days later, 30 days of planning, 90 days of writing, we wrote The Millionaire Real Estate Agent. And that's the start of our career. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing to hear that story. That a little really luck cool. that the two books were there, you know, yeah. that I had that history. Yeah. And I'm just happy I had the guts to talk to him in the bathroom. Yeah. That was like the moment for me that I think that was the choice. I could have like told other people to tell him or whatever, but I, that conversation kind of opened a door. Yeah. So looking back, since that moment, had a lot of things go well. What are you most proud of? Uh, gosh, I'd already married my wife, so that one's already checked off. I think the family we've built, I mean, I'm real clear. If you look on my goal sheets back there so you can test me at the very top, it's, you know, be the best husband I can be and be the best father I can be. And I feel like in my crazy motivation, when I'm doing those two things well, I'll be the best writer I can be. And that's the only way I can live in integrity. So I think we've done a really good job of keeping, we call it in the book, dominoes in the right yeah. order. Yeah. And a lot of you here in real estate, y'all know my wife, Wendy Papazan. She's got a huge team. You know what it's like to run a business. We have two business people in our family, and we still kind of manage to do that. You know, we have a date you. night every week. We have a family meeting every Monday. Our kids are in Acton. We know about that. Best move we've made in a long time. So I just feel like keeping that in order, you know, we're going on 18 years of marriage, and I'm really proud of that. Congrats. That's really yeah. cool. It's great to hear. Let's go into the book. So give us the essence. A lot are familiar, but what is the essence of the message for the one thing? I was thinking about this on the way out here because it so perfectly lines up with everything that Hal talks about in terms of the execution. Ours is, you know, identify what matters most. You know, the principle is if you're always working from your priorities, you cannot have any regrets. That's at the very end of the book, really. But that was the beginning of the book. This idea, how do you live a life with no regrets? Well, the only way to really do that is to always be acting on your priorities. And so the book, we tried to come up with a practical method I'm real pragmatic. I hate business books that don't tell me what to do. That's another reason I like The Miracle Morning, because he dared to tell us what to do and dared to be wrong, right? Because you could be wrong. And I want to hear, like, what does this look like in real life? Don't just tell me the concept. And so Gary and I agree on that big time. Mm -hmm. And so how do you identify what matters most? And then how do you act on it? And so we came up with a hypothesis and used about four and a half years of research to back it up. And so basically, you identify your one thing with the focusing question, what's the one thing I can do such that by doing it, everything else will be easier or unnecessary? It's a long question. What's the one thing I can do such that by doing it, everything else will be easier or unnecessary? And we're asking your brain to come up with one idea. And it came from accountability. Anybody here have a coach? I do, right? So Gary was coaching people. And you get to the end of the 30-minute coaching call and you'd have to agree, what are you going to get done next week, right? What are you going to get done between now and next week to really move the ball forward? And people would list them out. And it was really in frustration because people would do items three, four, and seven, but never number one. Like people tend to avoid the big things. And he got angry and he'd be like, all right, if you only get three things done this week, what are they going to be? And they do two and three. And it was really in frustration that he said, if you only get one thing done this week that really moves the ball forward, what's it going to be? That's the only thing I'm going to ask you next week. What he realized then when he narrowed it to one was that everybody did it. There's no place to hide. If you only have one thing on your to-do list, you either did it or you didn't. Mm -hmm. And that's just kind of an instant accountability. 
And the joyous thing he discovered over time is that when people did the one thing, they did two, three, four, five, and six anyway. And it was just getting them in the right order. Really and cool. so it simplified the conversation. So it's a question that's specific. When people ask it, in my experience, most people are dead on and they just feel guilty for not having done it. They know what their one thing is. Yeah. It's very rare that you find people who truly don't know. Yeah. They might be doing something completely new, like I want to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Well, yeah. then your one thing is to find out how. Yeah. So do that one thing. And ideally, if you have a career or a vocation, you're a musician, you're an artist, whatever, there's usually one thing if you look up and look around that if you do it a lot, your success will almost be guaranteed. In business, like if you're not good at lead generation, it's hard to be really great at whatever you do, right? You can be the best shoemaker in the world, but if nobody hears about you, you won't make many shoes. So that tends to be the thing in business, yeah. that first domino. And then we just kind of preach, make that a habit. And again, you look at the miracle morning. When do we tell you? Research says do it in the morning, right? You have the most willpower in the morning. And the only place our research didn't perfectly align is the research we found is it takes about 66 days on average. If you really want to commit to a new behavior, isolate it and do it on a regular basis. And after about 66 repetitions on average, it'll become habitual. And the danger, even in that number, right? This is Gary's smart like question. Anybody tell me what the average temperature in America is right now? You can Google it if you want. Who cares? We all have the dress for Austin, right? So it's a trick question. So 66 is the average, and you have to be aware of anything like that. It's instructive in that most people hear 21 or 30, and so they take their foot off the gas too early. So we called the researchers, and we said, what was the actual data? And the earliest someone formed a habit was 18 days, but the longest was 254. And so if you really want to form a habit, you got to stick with it till it's a habit. Hmm. All of y'all have done the miracle morning, right? So I presume almost all of you had to start getting up earlier. Do you remember the first time you woke up before the alarm clock went off? That was probably a real sign that the habit was forming. Your body knew to wake up before you did. Like I've got kids, they trained me. I can't sleep past about 6.30 now, right? Because, you know, bottle feedings and everything else, that was my job in the morning. And I just got trained and I just never got untrained. So that's the thing. Figure out what really matters and then work hard for a habit, and then that habit will serve you for as long as you maintain it. That's awesome. And that's like, if you want a secret recipe for success, that's kind of at the heart of a lot of it. Figure out what matters, make it habitual, because maintaining a habit, how much thought do y'all give to brushing your teeth? Hopefully almost none, and it still happens, right? I didn't ask you flossing for a reason, right? (laughs) But... That's something that your parents drilled into you pretty early on. I've still got kids that we have to kind of drill. And so I know how many years it takes. It can take at least 12 years, I can guarantee you, (laughs) right? But right around there, it's clicks for people. But if that happens for you professionally, whatever it is that matters, it's really magical moment where the thing that matters most is something that you don't have to fight anymore. It's just something that happens for you. Yeah, that's That's the essence for me. That's awesome. You and I chatted recently and... I was asking you about, you know, what are you interested in today? What are you focused on today? And it led to a conversation where you talked about how getting clear on priorities that has a relationship to also being clear on our sense of purpose. Yeah. Talk about the role that purpose plays for you and that you believe it can or should play for all of us. We wrote about it in the business. If you remember in business, in the book, there's a pyramid, which shows up in a lot of our books. 
And we called it like an iceberg. Most people see a really productive person or a profitable business, and they're seeing the tip of the iceberg. What lies under profit is productivity. And what lies under productivity is priority. When people are operating in their top priorities, they're naturally productive. And when people are productive, they tend to be profitable businesses, right? But what underlies the biggest, most powerful, productive companies is purpose. If you really know what your company's mission is, right, what your mission is, that gives you a real sense of what you need to say no to and yes to, right? So purpose gives you priority. Priority gives you productivity, and you work your way up. And it's a real tough question for a lot of people. I know I struggled mm-hmm. with it, yeah. you know, because people think of purpose and, like, do I have to get this tattooed on my back today? You know, do I share it with people? And it's really a journey. Yeah. So we talk about that in the book and how important it is to at least be searching, because the path itself is very rewarding. And you almost always know what direction to go, even if you don't know what destination you're trying to find. You know, my wife was born in Fargo, Minnesota, and she's very clear she's been moving south her entire life, right? She just wants warmer weather, wherever it is. But Fargo will do that to you. And so everybody has a progression like that in their patterns. Like maybe you love serving people. And so it really behooves you to figure that out. I like to teach people. I like to help people. Gary's passion is the same. Like when we wrote our mission statement for our book company, it was really about helping people think bigger about their lives and then act on it. We didn't want the first part without the second part. And that's a much bigger question to answer. And that's a big part of our professional purpose. And then we look up and I guess for seven or eight years, it's been a journey for my wife and I. And then for the last two years, I've been teaching it. So when you ask what's on your mind, I mean, I don't know if anybody was here at Keller Williams Family Reunion, this last one. Ben Kinney and I taught a class. It was our second year. And we taught a class on giving. And we're both like super passionate about this. And it all kind of started, I'd been on a journey to try to give more and to be a little bit like, how can I take my purpose and use it to not only drive what's inside, but everything outside. And we started setting some goals around that. And then a guy named Adam Grant wrote a book called Give and Take fabulous book. And he talked about strategic giving. And the opening pages, I'll spoil just like 10 pages for you. They did a survey of people who made the most income in companies. And they classified them in three groups. You were a giver, a matcher, or a taker, right? A giver is someone who's altruistically looking out for other people. A taker is looking out for just themselves. We all know a few. And matchers are the people, it's like, I'll help you out, but I kind of expect you to help me out. And the moment that ends... I'm going to stop helping you, right? And we resent them when they don't reciprocate. Well, I paid for the meal last time. Aren't you going to pay for it this time? And we all have moments in all three, just so you know. Like I've been a taker at different times and I've been a matcher at different times, but we strive to be different things. And what kind of horrified them is who do you think was at the very bottom of the poll for income earners? Givers. There were takers down there. Over time, takers worked their way down because they're discovered, but givers were at the very bottom too. And then they had to really slice and dice the research to find that at the very top, there's a very small sliver of people that they called strategic givers. And that's what the whole book was about. People who could give strategically, they could do it in service of their business and their career without getting walked over all the time. And big aha for me is it's okay. Like you don't want to be conspicuous, right? In your consumption or in your giving, but as a business person, you can get credit for giving. You know, it's called the Gates Foundation for a reason. And every time I see a Microsoft product, it softens my hatred for that product a little bit, 
right? <laughs> because I know this guy is like eliminating malaria and all these things. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, like, I'm an Apple guy. I always thought that stuff made no sense. But I'm like, I love the Gates Foundation and I love Bill and Belinda Gates and what they're doing. And that matters to me. And when you study Paul Newman and all these other people, there are people out there that have given away billions and billions of dollars and they've done it very strategically. And they've also had a huge life. And so we were exploring that. It was actually on a hunting trip with Ben. He said, my goal is to give away a million dollars every year. And I was like, well, awesome. How are you doing? And at that point, he was giving away about $40,000 a month. And his whole reason for growing a business was so that he could give away more. And he could provide more opportunity for the people who work for him. And his statement, and I'm just like quoting my best friend here, he goes, if you're trying to keep your business small, you're being selfish. To be small is to be selfish. And he equated big with being generous because it allowed you to touch and impact more lives in your company and outside it. And we just like the entire hunting weekend, that's all we talked about. And actually the new millionaire real estate agent, the top of the pyramid, we asked the question, how do you build a business so big you could give away a million dollars a year? Yeah. And that's the path my wife and I are on. And so I've been experimenting. That's been the thing I talk about now when people ask me that question is how can we be better givers? How can we teach our children to be better givers and why people don't do it and why people should? Hmm. Do you want me to do expound upon that a little bit? Okay. All right. We're building kind of a model. First, we ask the question, why don't people give more? I think some people don't give because they lack an abundant mindset, right? They think they still have to take care of their family first. And there's truth to that at times, right? I don't ever want to judge that. But I get that people who are coming from a place of austerity may not feel like generosity is ready. They think it's going to happen in the future. A lot of people simply have never experienced the joy of giving or think that they don't. Their gift, it would never be big enough to matter. And I'll counter both of those. $35 will restore someone's sight. Do you know that? For $12, you can provide education for a year in some countries for a child. So small, small gifts can have a massive, massive impact if we're strategic in where we point those dollars. You know, you're right. If you give 12 bucks to, you know, the American way or whatever, like it just gets swallowed up. But if you look for micro giving, you can find amazing causes where your kids, think about that. How much do they earn an allowance? They could give someone sight back every single month. How rewarding Hmm. would that be? Wow. So every big counts. One statistic, it's three years old. So forgive me, I'm not writing this book yet. I'm just playing with it. The top 10% of wealthy people give 25% of all money. That's all we ever read about, these foundations that write the million-dollar checks. Well, my aha is, well, where does the other 75% come from? The vast majority of all giving is done by the bottom 90, and the gap between the top 10 and the 90 is huge, Mm. right? Even the successful people here, we're all in the top 10%, I would argue. We're not in that bottom. So everybody counts. And then this idea of never experienced giving, if you've never experienced the joy of giving because of where you came from or the way you raised then how can we as leaders in our organization make those opportunities available for our children and the people who work with us? So the story Ben told, he had a $500 scholarship at his high school, right? And he'd done it the last few years because he was like the poorest kid at that high school. And so he funded, you know, like basically books for some kid going to college. And he took one of his coworkers who knew he was making great money but wasn't generous. And right before the announcement of the award, He goes, I'm going to do something. And if you don't do it, basically, I'm going to fire you. And he goes, you're going to go up there and you're going to be the face of this gift. They don't know who wrote the check. You're the person funding the scholarship. I just want you to see how it felt. 
And the guy went up there, and it's like 500 bucks. This guy probably spent that much in Vegas. And he came back into the car, he started crying. And he's like, I've never felt that before. Well, guess what happened to that guy's life, right? So there's a lot of reasons people don't. Don't judge them, but you need to be looking for it and how can I cure that? Because the gift of giving, like it's documented. There's some scientists that say that we cannot actually be altruistic at all because by doing for others, like a 55-year-old person that volunteers, the act of volunteering is more helpful for them than quitting smoking, right? It adds years to your life, quite literally. It lowers depression, increases rates of contentment and happiness and calmness. All the things, the benefits we get from it are enormous. So we kind of kicked around, and I'll give you, if I can do this from memory, we came up with five stages of giving, all right? So if you wanted to take notes, that would be it. The first thing we encourage people to give, if you can't give anything else, give gratitude. If you're at a fundraiser and you see someone raise their hand and make a donation, if you thank them for that, hey, I saw what you did. I saw that you put money in that guy's you know, purse. I saw that you stopped and gave money at this. People who are thanked for giving are more than twice as likely to do it again. So the simple act of saying thank you can perpetuate the act of giving. Everybody can give their gratitude. Do you all agree? Okay. The next thing, and maybe the most precious thing you can give is your time. At the time, our president, Mary Tennant, she was running our company from like 2004 to, I don't know, before she stepped down three years ago. And I remember at Christmas time, everybody was going through the ritual act of giving all their coworkers presents. And I remember seeing her in the hallway and she looked angry. And the next time we had our employee leadership gathering, she suggested that we ban employee to employee and boss to employee and employee to boss giving, most of which we don't want to do, but we feel compelled to do. And instead, as teams, give back to our community. If you wanted to give something to each other, you just did it privately. You didn't do it in the office because we didn't want that to be a political thing. And so every year at the last meeting of the year, our teams will stand up and where do we donate our time? Did we do a fundraiser? Did we go volunteer to soup kitchen? So in lieu of the hundreds of dollars we spend on obligatory giving, can we direct that back into our communities? And so giving time, you know, making it a cultural statement in your business. I'm giving you that because that changed the way I looked. I'd never donated my time. My parents had never taken me to a soup kitchen. I'd never done any of that. And then the first time you do it, you're like, okay, this is a lot of work, <laughs> but it's very rewarding. And we've done it ever since. And so finding ways to give in your community, your church, whatever it is, volunteer, it may actually be, I said, the most precious thing you can do. My brother-in-law is a great example, Brent. He's not ostentatious. If he gives money, I'll never know it. But there's a widow at our church. And I think every Sunday for the last 10 years, he's driven like miles and miles out of the way to drive her to church since her husband died. And I just think like he's giving, like, right? That's just coming from the right place. So it can be given formally. You can get tax credit or not. Where could you give your time? Can you help the old guy next door mow his yard, right? How can we do this? Because it's just rewarding. So gratitude and then your time. Give your money, obviously, is the third step. My wife and I, when we first started this journey, we were really like, I've written three books on investing. We wanted to be millionaires. And so we really wanted to take every penny and put it into things that were working. We didn't have a lot of cash laying around. So we started small. And we asked, like, what is the most common way that we, like, get asked to give? 
And I think maybe our realtor, Peter Dennison, I don't know if you know him, like may have kind of helped us talk through this in the car. But like most of the time, it's someone coming up asking to you to buy popcorn for the Boy Scouts or Girl Scout cookies. It's people you already know asking for a GoFundMe for this or that. And so we just started our Say Yes Fund. And we, at the beginning of the year, put $2,500 in it. And that way, every time someone asks us, we just say yes and give 50 bucks. And we figured that we got about 50 of those a year. And most years, we don't go through all of it. But our job is just to say yes. And I can tell you, it's a lot cooler than closing the curtains and hiding behind the couch when the Girl Scouts are at your door, right? Like when you see that person walking through the office and you know they've got the notepad and you're like, oh, I don't want cookies, right? doesn't matter. Say yes, help them out. So we did that. The other thing in real estate, we can do this very easily. We try to teach people now to give automatically. So how could you take all the decision-making out of your giving choices? My wife, for years now, this is actually where the relationship with Ben started, she takes $50 out of every transaction she closes and gives it to a charity. And to our shock and dismay, many years ago, just by doing this on 100 transactions, she became one of the top 10 givers to that charity in our company and got invited to a special banquet. And Ben was there. And I remember him talking to me, he goes, what makes me sad is the people in our industry that make the most money, this should be the table full of real estate agents. But it was team leaders, it was office owners, it was business owners. And he goes, they're setting a great example for us, but they don't make the most money. How can we get more agents, people who have a lot of income to give more? And so we've been resting on that. But I don't know in your world, I know that I have my 401k money taken right off the top of my checks and I don't notice it. Could you have other money partitioned from the money you earn in such a way that you just learn to live on what's left and what's taken out, you could give automatically. So that's a question I don't know how to answer in your industries. I know how we handle it. But give automatically. Find ways to do it so it's not a decision. And then obviously set goals around it. Before my wife and I set goals around tithing or anything like that, we set goals around how much money we can raise. And every year we raise them, right? That's kind of back in the time quadrant. If I can't write the check, can I use my influence and my time to raise the money, right? All you guys can grow a mustache. I'm blonde. I can't. But the whole like Movember thing, right? Set a goal. How much money can I raise for something that matters to me and make it a goal that you would pursue like any business goal? Like a lot of people do that and they don't make it a goal, right? They have a target, but they don't really care if they don't hit it because it felt good to get $500 towards 5,000. We still did good. I don't think we treat those goals the same way. And the last two are leadership and wealth. And by giving your leadership, is it the biggest investment of time you can give? How many people here are running a business? Everybody here for the most part? Okay. How much have you learned today? Do you think nonprofits come to these things very often with their budgets? How much could you offer a board if you walked in and said, I want to contribute? Most small charities are so hungry for people who can bring real ideas and practical advice to the table. You don't have to be an accountant or a lawyer to do it. Those professions have really wonderful traditions of volunteering. And I would just challenge you, if you're not, my wife and I have done it now for five years, and she's on the board for another charity now. And bringing leadership is about an hour or two a month. It's real focus time, but you can make an impact by teaching other people within the organization. So it's, for me, it's a higher level. And the last one is wealth. And we're not there yet. 
This is where we read about the Gates Foundation, Martin Zuckerberg, you know, setting aside a huge portion of his wealth. The five-hour energy guy, you know, like 99% of his company was put away so that his family can't touch it. He just gave it all away. The guy who started Duty Free made, I think, 70, uh, he was $7 billion. And around 1979, 1989, he quietly set up a trust that this year he would have given every penny he ever made away. And he's just living in apartments that were owned by the company now, wearing bad suits. But his whole vision was to make money to give it away. So what legacy can we leave as business owners? And that's stuff that you need an accountant for. That's stuff that you need to talk to your CPA for. But you can be thinking of it. Like, what would I want my business to be about? What would the Papazan Foundation be? You know, I think with Acton being such a huge influence on our family, and how much I'm passionate about education. My kids, we're kind of like, I think it's going to have to do with children's education, but we don't know what. But I would challenge you, find something that lines up with what you do and what your business is about, and can you brand it and make it as something? Because when your company has a charity, I know our company has too, your people become evangelists for your business, right? Did you know that when you do this, this happens? I mean, think about the people that work at Tom's, right? There's so many great companies that have a charitable arm attached to them. Newman's own, right? The for-profit business funds the charity. That's actually what Zuckerberg copied. A for-profit business is a much better way to make a lot of money, but you can still, through organizational documents, dedicate 100% of it to go to a nonprofit who now can spend 100% of its efforts, not on fundraising, but on delivering the goods. And they set up these very synergistic things. So I would challenge you. Like I said, I can't teach you about that. I'm studying it. I got the Newman's own model down and the Bill Gates model. Bill Gates' model was 50% went to his foundation, 25% went to one charity of their choice, and then 25% of his wealth was their Say Yes fund. That was everything else. But he just partitioned his wealth and said, this is where it's all going to go. But if you're really successful and you knock it out of the park, what legacy will you be leaving besides the product or service that you created I can tell you it really invigorates me because at a certain point on mastery, it's just what you're doing will get a little bit boring. It almost always does. You'll get joy in moments and joy in the journey, but the excitement of building something new does go away, but you can renew it with purpose. So if you can't tell, like, this is the thing that... I can promise you this resonates with this group. Well, this is, I mean, by reputation, you guys are all about purpose and giving back. So I applaud you all for that. I want to connect it. By the way, is this awesome? It's totally cool. Cool. I, uh, Jay, I want to connect a dot for you. And for all of us, a couple of things. I'm just sharing things that I'm hearing here that I think can really resonate. One of the things I love is that you're reminding us not only how important purpose is, but you're reminding us that giving, whether it's time, talent, treasure, and they can happen all at once uh, or differently, but you're reminding us that it is both something that gives us deep fulfillment, right? Which is so critical. We come here worried about the science of achievement, but the art of fulfillment, we've got to have that. Otherwise, nothing is worth it, right? You hear Hal talking to us yesterday about what really matters in life. This is a group that believes so deeply that we need to succeed wildly as entrepreneurs and we've got to be fulfilled. And I love that you're connecting the dot that giving is a way of doing that. And I think it's so valuable that you're not finishing with that and reminding us that we have permission as entrepreneurs to allow our giving to also be strategic, right? Give and take, Adam Grant, the strategic givers win. 
And I thank you for making that point because it's not something to apologize for or even hide. It's something to let the world know, to be a light, to be an example that I am taking the wealth and the revenue that I'm generating in supporting other things that creates an inspiration for others. And Jay, just to connect the dots. So, I mean, this is a room full of people that are doing this. And we have people here who've given $2,500 for a piece of avocado toast <laughs> to support the uh, front I love avocado foundation. too. That's yeah. great. Yeah, well, Can we get avocado toast? We're going to auction it off to Jay. Um, you know, Michelle back here, who is with Keller Williams, you know, she, Michelle, in your co-creation intake form, one of the things you wrote down as a vision is multi-generational wealth. And I'm so glad that you're bringing this to this group because I want all of you to think about having a goal like multi-generational wealth, it not only can give you a sense of meaning or purpose that's expansive, but it can then give you fuel that keeps you going. I get bored with one job and I got to go on to the next, but that kind of mission is never going to be boring. We have uh, Josh Painter in the room here who we brought up on stage last night. And Josh is a real estate agent who decided to do something innovative. So I know you mentioned you're looking for examples. Mm -hmm. You want to do research. This room is full of it right here. Um, Josh Painter, he went into his community and started something called the Impact Club. And they said, anyone who wants to just give a hundred bucks, we're going to pool it all together. We're going to throw a party. We're going to bring in local charities. We're going to pick one. and We're going to write them a check for 20 grand. They started this thinking, let's see if we could get a hundred members this year. And they're already almost up to 200 members. They had through their first party and they're doing it quarterly just to help on a local level. The dot that I want to make sure to connect is when you and, and I... That's the small contributions that add up to a lot. But because you're at the same party, you gave 100, but it felt like you gave 20 grand. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Way to go. And there's no shame in what it's going to do for him and his business. Mm-hmm. I want to connect it out. When I told you last week about how we have been trying to innovate at Quantum Leap and through Best Year Ever by aligning with the Front Row Foundation. And I shared with you some stories about how we're doing these fundraisers. This is the group right here that has been contributing, that has turned our events into fundraisers. Love it. They've done it four different times now. They've raised 100 grand, 100 grand, 100 grand, 100 grand at the GoBundance event. So I just want you to know there's some amazing examples that this community has created. So as you're doing your research, we're going to give you lots of examples to keep sharing with the world. Feed me. Because I think examples matter, right? Because it shows you, like, I get the idea, but what does that look like, right? Mm -hmm. Ben, I'm picking on him because he's like three or four years down the road on me on a lot of this. One of the things, great to specific example, you know, if you've ever been asked to sponsor an event, he happened into this. There's a movie series in Bellingham, Washington, and they have a movie every Friday night or Saturday night in the square. And they called him up looking for sponsorship. And he asked, what does it cost to be a presenting sponsor? Has anybody been a presenting sponsor for anything before? I'd never heard that phrase. So I guess anytime you're doing a fundraiser, there are two or three presenting sponsors. And every time they do a radio ad, every time they do that, they have to mention those people, right? Brought to you by Dell, brought to you by this. And he said, yeah, the presenting sponsor is $5,000. And he goes, how many do you have? And they said, three. And instead of just writing a check for 5,000, this is the strategic part. And this is what he's so good. He said, if I were to take all of those slots and guarantee them into the future where I have first right of refusal, would you agree to the following terms? That I'm the only real estate company that you allow to be a sponsor, that I'm always first option, no matter how much you raise the rates, I get first option to be the only presenting sponsor, 
and we can renew it every single year. And I want signage and a booth. And they agreed to all of it. Because now, like, their hardest job was to fill those three slots. Now they're filled forever. And I've been to his town. Every year I go there, about now, to go fishing. I'm going Thursday night. I can't wait. And we're going to do our usual mastermind on the river. And every time I drive through the town, what do you see? This giant movie screen that flashes the Ben Kinney companies all week long. The amount of exposure he gets from that is just huge. And so I've heard stories on both sides of that, people who made the mistake and found it. But like, go model people who are doing this at a really great level right here in this room. What are we learning so that our dollars can go farther? We can match. We can do all the cool things that you learn on this journey to make your influence and impact just go that much farther. Yeah, it's awesome. And it's worth noting too that Hal is the charity that we support through these events. He's been the single biggest contributor in history. And it's one of those things leadership. he doesn't ever talk about either through his community and himself. They've given $300,000 to the front row in the last few years. Love and it. I have to remind him, hey, you should let your community know about these things. But I'm also pointing that out too, because Hal walks the talk and you don't see him tooting his horn about it, but it's also something that drives him. It drives him to give the kind of work ethic that we want to find the drive for that. He knows he's going to keep giving. He automatically has funds that get funneled and that drives him. Questions for Jay about the one thing, about this passion around giving or purpose. Just hold till we get a mic here. So we'll start right up here. Thanks, Jay. Hector Santi Esteban from Millennial Skills. I appreciate you responding to my DMs. and uh, It's great oh. to see you in person. How do I get young people to adopt the one thing philosophy? But a better question is, what kind of epiphany or when you're trying to get young people to care about contribution when they're maybe not in a place financially and they're not in a place in their business to even, you know, they're in that kind of me zone. What have you found has helped change that perspective to open up people to the value of contributing and the value of giving in a way that both makes them profitable and a way that is purposeful as well? Are these people in your business or people you're just trying to have influence over? Uh, Influence over in our tribe community. I know in our business, we didn't make it a standard, but we as a company do like a poker tournament every year and we ask everyone on the team to volunteer. That was like Mary Tennant's playbook where she asked all of us to contribute. So if you can't get them to just kind of passively, just by peer pressure, participate, because usually participation is all it takes. A couple of experiences, challenge them. If you can't influence them through coercion, right, even positive, then I would challenge them. I went to Noah Kagan's house and he was interviewing me and he was talking about giving too. And I issued a challenge down. I knew he was curious, right? Teaching people who aren't ready for the message is maybe not the best use of your time. But like when you can tell, like I remember he was cocking his head. He was asking questions. He was curious, like what, what, you know? And then challenging people to do more and to think differently about it. So the first one, like, you know, surprise them. Just said, the next time I'm going to challenge you, the next time you see someone giving anything, I'm going to challenge you to go up and thank them. Give them the smallest possible domino, right? Don't ask them to give money, right? But then if you can get them to volunteer, hey, I'm going to do this thing. If I pick you up, will you go with me, right? Take all of the obstacles out of the way so that it can be easier for them to experience it. Because I do think that when people experience it, I believe that it will change them. Um, In most cases, if they're receptive to it at all, it really will. So just take the barriers out of the way and let them, they don't have to jump straight to writing checks. I think that is a barrier because, I mean, kids today with their school debt and everything else, I get it. Their mindset may not be one of abundance. 
but they can give their time. They can volunteer. They can raise money, right? Reward someone, match funds. Have you ever matched anyone's funds? Just put them and say, look, if all of you guys can raise a thousand bucks, I don't care how you do it, I'll match it all, right? And now they get to feel the impact party that their money got doubled. There's a reason charities do that because people go, wow, my $5 just turned into 10, right? And they get that extra bit of something. So find a way to take the barriers away so they can experience it. Cool. Great and question. Hector. Honestly, the same thing for getting the one thing. We'll go to Tyler. Yeah. Hey, Jay. Tyler Cobble. I'm in commercial real estate. Could you elaborate upon the vision of 13 books and how that was planned out? Because a lot of us are budding authors in here, and that's a massive vision. Cool. I mean, that's, if you isolate me and Wendy at any moment and ask us, what's the biggest impact that Gary Keller's had on our lives? And it's consistently pushing us to think bigger for ourselves. Every time I think I'm thinking big and I run an idea by him, I realize I could have thought bigger, right? There is no limit. There is no biggest idea. And he's exercised that muscle a lot. Some of the books we've already written, he thinks he's a franchise guy. So he thought in franchises. And so, you know, he's like the millionaire real estate agent was the first. And we talk about that in the one thing. At the time we wrote the book, there were 6,700 agents in Keller Williams all over the world. And today there's 150,000. And we weren't fashionable among the top people. And so, you know, the idea was, can we write a book about the highest levels of success that might open that door for us? So he was very clear that the millionaire real estate agent was going to be number one. We talked about the millionaire real estate investor because we were passionate. All of us were interested and passionate about investing. And then we had like, well, if you write a general book, would you write one about flipping? Would you write one about holding, right? And so some of those came to pass. No One Succeeds Alone is the next book in the One Thing series. And it's probably three or four years out. It'll take a lot of research, but it's about the power of relationships. There's some that didn't work out. You know, the millionaire small business owner, which was great in concept. We even did some masterminding around it. And it may show up someday, but what I found out was the millionaire real estate agent, like I get letters from chiropractors and doctors and use, I mean, it's the millionaire business owner. And so it just like, we didn't happen. So he was thought, well, if I write this, where would that naturally lead? And if I write this, where would that naturally lead? He doesn't stop at one idea. He's capable of asking, is there a longer run of dominoes? And that is like, when Gary came up with the idea for the book, he wrote a small essay called The Power of One. And my immediate reaction is this, not only is this a book, this is your book, because that's what he does. This is what we need to do. And then he immediately scans the horizon. What's the biggest opportunity I could currently tackle? And the biggest opportunity is the one with the most dominoes behind it. And so like half the books were like five book series, right? You know, like five books in investing. It would be a bunch of books on real estate brokerage and sales. And that just ended up being two books. So... That's just what he does. And every year we would get back together and we'd ask, what's our five-year vision? What's our one-year vision? And, but he just is always looking way out. What are the repercussions? I don't know how instructive that is. It's just a story, you know, but he thinks in terms of franchises and lines of books, like where one book's success opens the door for more. Tyler's a big thinker. That was a good question. I want to go to Nina. Hi, my name is Nina Perez. And I just want to thank you for switching from the one thing to contribution and giving because I have a son, he's four, and we just finished a challenge of 180 days of front row moments that align with the foundation. And we were looking at the next one and we found one called 365 Give. And it's a daily give every day. And it's 
designed for kids and parents to do it together. Oh, that's so cool. So it's really cool. 365 Give, is that yeah, the name of it? exactly. And I just wanted to share that with you. And I just want to share with everybody, when I told Gavin, I said, we have to think of things to give. And he goes, we could give smiles. That was his first give that we're going to do. I love it. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Love that. Is that is cool. Can we give Nina a one clap on one? Yeah. One. Hey, Jay. I have to change my model now. Uh, and I'm going to piggyback off of Tyler's question. And the one thing they talk about how that book was one of a hundred ideas, I believe, on how to scale Keller Williams. Good memory. And I'm just curious, were you part of that process? And what would you know about that process? In, uh, nice pivot. Because <laughs> you know Gary and you yeah, know how the organization still, I was still was. working in the tech department while they were brainstorming in the other room. And all I know is when he told me that story, it was like, pretty much the only idea that only was going to rest on his shoulders was the book. And it's no surprise that everybody's like, well, why don't you write a book, Gary? Like, you know, everybody has a job. And so he stepped out of his role and did the book. And my question was, what is the one thing that we can do as a real estate company that would make everything else easier or unnecessary that led to a list of 100? The question was, in real estate, is a really strange industry, right? And people tend to... If a $10 million producer joins your company, our research shows three more agents will join without you having to work for them. And the number one corollary to having profit in the brokerage business is the number of agents that you have in it. And we've done that study year after year after year. And that's just like, that's why our model is built for that. Can we support the, and the largest number of agents because that correlates the most to profit? Well, if I can get a four for one Every time I recruit someone, doesn't that accelerate the process? So they were asking the question, how do we become, and because 10 million was a lot back then. Today, it's, you know, agents can do that in their second year. But you look up and 10 million used to be this huge hallmark of success. Like, how can we be fashionable to them? Well, no one had written the book on teams. No one had really explored that. And it was a very disruptive idea in our industry because it was consolidating a lot of income. This is very deep in the weeds, but it was a very purposeful book. One, it had to deliver the goods because most real estate agents back in 2002 were talked about like salespeople, not business people. And you've met some of the ones in this room. Would you call them salespeople or business people? Right. The industry has definitely grown up and we were there at that moment where nobody was ready to say it yet but they were running million-dollar businesses. These were business people. And so we tried to change the language around that. And so that was his differentiation. We can be different than our competitors by acknowledging what's already going to happen. By not fighting it, we'll be the only ones to embrace it. And, you know, in terms of the people who want to write a book, as a business owner, when someone comes up and, like, usually your team should join our company. Well, why is that? Well, we kind of wrote the book on that. That's Gary talking right there. That's not Jay. But like, we wrote the book on it. Like, you can own the language and the intellectual property around a change in your industry. And some of that's luck. And we've tried many, many times to change the language. There's more acronyms and stupid language in our company than any other. <laughs> but every now and then, we nail it. And then we get to own that word. And that's something that I've seen as being very valuable, is if you can take ownership over a change in the industry, people will naturally seek you out. So Does that help? Yeah, absolutely. I know you wanted me to be in the room on the brainstorming. Yes. <laughs> you restructured the language of the real estate category by going from individual to team very intentionally. And that's marketing 101. I'm trying to think, is it the Al Rice book? 
whatever category you're in, subdivide it until you can be number one. And that's the only business you want to be in. So, yeah, the immutable laws. There we go, immutable laws. And like, that's why you had, you know, we're the leader in laptops. We're the leader in servers. You'll always get it broken down. But small businesses always don't think that way, you know? And so we became the category of the big brokerage that supported the team. And that happened to be a great moment in time to embrace that as more and more agents were moving that direction. Awesome. I didn't have that perspective at the time. I was just writing a book. But historically now I can kind of see it like, wow, he was seeing a lot more than the rest of us were. AJ, I just want to say thank you because I'm I'm a lender, but I've read The Millionaire Real Estate Agent, I think four times now. My copy's all dog-eared and it's, nice. it's a phenomenal book. For anybody in any business, you should read it because the stuff about lead generation is really, really great. And I think everybody in this room and a lot of people in real estate have been in five, six, seven-year bull market. And regardless of what you think about the macro economy, like we're probably closer to a peak than a valley. Oh, yeah. um, what are you guys seeing with the top teams in real estate, with you guys at the corporate level? Like, What are you guys doing to prepare for the eventual rainy day downturn, whatever the hell you want to call it, that comes in a month, a year, a decade? Like, How are you guys being proactive about the possible downside? Well, Gary's like he survived two major recessions, right? So Gary Keller got his real estate license in, oh, 79, right? Started selling in Austin, Texas, where he never lived. And within two years, interest rates went up to 19%. And then you had the Tax Act of 1986 and the savings and loan bust. And like the real estate market in Austin crashed. Half the board left. So he was good as the engine that was built on the worst possible market. And that's been the mantra I mean, we have 150,000 agents and we still only have 250 employees. And we are dwarfed by much smaller competitors in terms of their cost structure. So very lean and mean. And I just think that when people are really being successful, it's very easy. I need more space. I need more space. And one of the mantras we're preaching, I mean, we track it. I mean, I can tell you exactly the month where the most number of our corporate leases will come up. Because we went out immediately and tracked every lease for every office. Because if the future is the internet of real estate, the last thing you want to do is sign a seven-year lease for a business right before that happens. And so we're tracking the things that could be the most harmful to us. It's not where you put all your energy, but you resist those things. And you have to ask different questions. Well, how can we operate at this high market with so little space, right? Because in a shifted market in any industry, the first competitor to find their margin can immediately take that margin and start putting the other guys out of business. That was an eye-opener for me as a business person. But the first person who finds their margin, like everybody else is going, oh, God, they're going through the five stages of grief. They haven't admitted that the market has turned. And so like we've been trying to hold our big teams accountable to variable expenses versus fixed expenses. Because the shoe could drop in two years or it could drop in two months. We don't know. You can't predict the future. Nobody's got a crystal ball. But we do know, historically, we're overdue. And so the people who are not in real estate, hopefully you're real estate investors, this is a great time to be hoarding cash, right? The people who went into the last recession with a war chest, when I look at 2011, homes will never be more affordable than they were that year. Their prices had dropped nationally by like, you know, 20, 30%, and interest rates were at an all-time low. So money was cheap, houses were cheap. There was a tremendous transfer of wealth at these moments. 
one of the great opportunities of any shift, right? Any market, whatever industry you're in that gets disruptive, is that it's always an opportunity to grab market share. There's a guy named Jeff Calkins. He's a fortune editor. He wrote a book called The Upside of the Downturn. And my big takeaway from that book was companies who lose market share in a downturn rarely get it back, and those who take it rarely give it back. So it is the time. Like, you don't gain market share at the top of the market. So we see it as a huge opportunity. We went from being number four in the world to number one during the worst real estate recession since the Great Depression. And it wasn't by accident because we went into that knowing it was going to be painful. But if we were smarter and leaner and more focused on delivering value, we would emerge. And then when the market rises, you get a disproportionate share of the reward. But that's just where you're at right now. It's like, okay, we got to remember our discipline as business owners and not start taking on giant, because a lease is just debt, right? You have to personally sign for it. Almost everybody in this room, Gary still has to do that at times, right? So it's a huge risk for your business because if the market goes away, you're still stuck with this giant payment. So I don't know if that answers your question, but we're watching it. Debt, fixed expenses, leases, that's where we're hardest on right now. Yeah, great, take great all that money yeah. and lead generate with it. I want to ask you a question, Jay. You have so much experience. The photographer wants a question. Yeah, question. He's working hard out there. I, I want him to get his question. Got to throw him a question. Okay. My question is I really sincerely appreciate the whole area of giving. I consider myself kind of a serial giver. And a lot of my success has been centered around giving. But, you know, I constantly give of my time, my knowledge, my experience, and all of those things. But I often find when I meet someone, a client, a friend, a family member, a business lead, you know, I tend to get a lot of resistance for just giving. You know, I get resistance in my own organization or if it's the client or the friend or a stranger, you know, they think there's an agenda. You know, it's something that I've really faced a lot personally. So I just wanted to maybe get your thoughts on the resistance to just giving without any questions attached. That's a great question. So thank you. There's a lot of people who have issues with receiving. And we all know them. Let me get the check. No, no, no. Like, I mean, my dad's that way. He drives me insane. Can I please just get the check one time in my lifetime? Right? There's some people who just don't do well. In business, I think if you're giving, and it is strategic, be transparent about it. You know, or have a reason for it that makes sense. Right? So a lot of people who give all the time also put real strict guidelines on it. They'll give anybody a five-minute favor, but above that, there has to be some earn-in. Because you know, people will take a five-minute favor And there are also people that are just takers that will eat up all of your time and you'll end up at the bottom of givers. So I remember the five-minute favors and I started putting a series of tripwires in my life. I never want to say no to someone who wants advice on a book because I got a lot of it. But now I have a series of tripwires for them to earn that time and I limit it. And so I just think if you tell people that you have a program for doing it and it doesn't feel random, they'll actually maybe feel more comfortable with it. So, you know, I'm always willing to do one hour of free consulting because people did that for me when I was a photographer. And you wouldn't believe, one, it it actually gets us business sometimes. So it's a good business move, so don't feel too guilty. But it also opens up a lot of relationships. Give them a rationale. Make it a script. And then it'll serve you for your business. The last thing you want in response to giving is suspicion. 
You know, that's not working for you either. So come up with a script that helps people understand why you're doing it. And if they still say no, then respect it. Say, I got that. No problem. But let me know the offer stands, whatever you want to say. Awesome. I find that when I put a tripwire in front of my giving, nine out of 10 people go away. And my rule is if they won't help themselves, I'd rather invest my time in other people. Will you read this book? And then I'll talk to you. Will you watch this video? Then I'll talk to you. It's just that simple. It's not like when you climb this mountain with a sack full of rocks. <laughs> but it is a tripwire, right? Josh, thank you for that. That's great. On behalf of the group, you have so much experience with writing. We have a lot of authors and aspiring authors in here. So I just want to ask you, I, I know this could be a multiple day, never ending conversation, but for those that are aspiring or in the process of writing, or if they've already written their next edition, what advice do you have, success factors to books that work, that stick, that succeed? Okay. Let me organize my thoughts around this. I'm not going to make you all watch a video before I say anything. No. <laughs> uh, I see that little work around there. The first question I usually ask people is, why do you want to write a book? I think the number one answer I get, well, I say this, and people always say, you should write a book about this. And my question is, what qualified to them to tell you that that was a book? I was a professional editor for five years, and I had to read a lot of really bad manuscripts. <laughs> and a book is, I'm sure Hal could tell you this, a book is a labor of love. You need to really be called to write a book if you're going to do it or see true purpose in how that's going to serve you and your business. I think of this in terms of not your novel, I think about your business book, right? So I usually ask, like, would it serve you better to do a video or teach a class? You can actually make a lot more money at those things and do them a lot faster because people are a lot more forgiving hearing a podcast or watching a video. So the first thing is ask, is it really a book I need to write or do I have information I need to share? And is this the right medium? If you decide it is a book, because I'm usually giving this advice to realtors, most of them are already comfortable presenting. This is what we do, so it may not work for you. If you don't have an outline yet and you're not sure where to begin, teach your book. Go, and I don't care if you go into old folks' home or your kid's school. If you can teach a one-day seminar, most people, the simple idea of filling out a slide deck is something they can do. They can put headers. They can put lists. They have to do certain conventions. Tell them what you're going to tell them. Tell them, tell them what you told them, right? There's a rhythm to a simple presentation. And do that 20 times. And what you'll get is you'll find out looking in people's eyes, people will not thank you, nod their head and send the energy back from the back of the room. You'll start to hear what works and doesn't work because what's inside you, that's what editors do. They're readers advocates because authors are often blind to what the readers need because they're saying what they need to say. And editors help them put that into other words. So teaching the book can be a fabulous vehicle, one, to finding out if there's a market and really testing your stories again and again. The other one would be just to write every day. You know, I'm trying to really distill this. I always go back and say, do it in the morning. I know very, very few professional, successful writers that write after the kids are in bed. I know plenty that write before the kids wake up. I mean, y'all know this. I don't need to preach the morning to you guys. But it is a better time. Even if you're only writing 10 words a day, it'll add up over time. But if you really are going to be the writer, then you have to start writing. Telling people about ideas, for me, I wait a long time before I'll teach a book. 
And then I'm actively exploring, is this a book? I was doing that today. I did it at Family Reunion. I did it last year at Family Reunion, our big convention. I'm testing, is this good enough for a book? Are people responding to it? Can they take action on it? And I'm collecting new stories because the people in the room who are acting on it are giving me case studies. I just heard a great one on giving, and I am going to follow up. I love the Impact Club. That's awesome. So I think that's just a great method. So you write, you collect, you teach. But just talking about it at dinner parties, I'm not sure that's the best use of your creative energy because you might have enough fun telling it that you won't want to write it. And lastly, I would say, unless you really identify as a writer, hire someone. Tucker's going to speak tomorrow. Is that right? Yeah. His company, Book in a Box, I know people have used it. When you put the dollar value of your time into writing a book, what you can get for 15000 from them is pretty solid for a self-published author. And there's nothing stopping you from taking that product and then tweaking it, tweaking it, and tweaking it until it's perfect. But if you don't, if you're not a writer, hire one. Hire a service, whatever, and then hold them really accountable to capturing the message. Is anybody here impatient just a little bit? <laughs> okay. Didn't want to make presumptions because I did walk in when y'all were like meditating. Um, <laughs> but that the, was to uh, fix our impatience. There we go. Yeah. There we go. Um, the thing about a book, right? I remember Gary and he would interrogate everything that we wrote. And I described it to my wife one night. I said, I feel like he is reading it as if his worst enemy at the time, it was Dave Lineker, right? His worst competitor. Like he's reading over his shoulder, waiting for him to slip up. It was so protective. And at times it felt even negative to me. And I think what Gary understood intuitively as a business person and when I was learning, it's not a website. It's not software. There's no 2.0 that you can push out to all the existing 1.0 users. When you put your words out into the world, you're not there to defend them. And you can't replace them if you got it wrong. So setting a goal, a deadline around it is fine. But I never, we've never held ourselves to our deadlines. Our publishers hate us. Because I would rather be very late and great, right, than on time and something that rhymes with on time, maybe just fine. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. But um, I do take the time to make it, because it's your name. It's your reputation that's going out there. It doesn't have to be perfect, but have really people who can be tough with you. Maybe in this group, y'all can be really tough with each other and just say, you don't have to be the grammarian for them. Just say, this is not ready yet. You need to keep doing it. Awesome. And let people know the truth. So that would be my quick advice. That's awesome. Do you have time if I fire two more quick questions? Yeah, sure. Maybe three? All right. Um, (laughs) We do have a lot of folks in here that are authors and in the process of writing or just about to start. We live in a changing world right now. What are the kinds of trends that you are seeing that if you were about to start a book, you'd say, hey, make sure you're paying attention to XYZ, whether it's trends in what readers, and let's just assume we all write to business professionals, what they tolerate, how I organize information, how I deliver it, types of information that people are receptive to, any trends at all that you see? All right. Here's some just general tips. Like one, I don't think anybody needs to get a publisher in New York anymore. I really see the value proposition of the big publishers. And it's very rare that your book, the time and effort it will take and the control you'll have to give away. I think as I mean, you may already know this and you've seen it from what Hal's done. The value proposition they have to offer any new author is very, very slim, and you could be tied up for a very long time. The contracts are not nice, and they will lock you into multiple book contracts, and you will feel flattered because it's HarperCollins or Random House. So I would go and just be really, really successful. And 
If you are, they will come calling and then you can name your terms. So first and foremost, I don't think there's any stigma at all to self-publishing. I wouldn't worry about it. I would just go be successful anyway. And then if you're really catching an audience, you can entertain having someone who has a lot of trucks carry books to bookstores, which is what you can't do by yourself. But you don't have to with Amazon. The other big mistake I see people make is you need to design your cover. I mean, pay a few bucks for a professional, for starters. Don't let your kids do it. Lay it out, pay for a proofreader, pay for a copy editor. And those are two separate people. Copy editor will make your sentences work and a proofreader has to have a fresh set of eyes to catch everything that the copy editor didn't. Our publisher, Ray Bard, paid for four separate proofreadings of our book and we still had an error in it. But he knew that this is going out in the world in large numbers and we want to get it right. And when people see simple errors that could have been prevented early in the book, you've lost their trust. The first five pages, you gain their trust. The first 550, hopefully the five, they won't keep reading if you don't do it there. The first 50 is where you can get them to hang on for as long as they're going to read. Whenever I read manuscripts at HarperCollins, it was 550 and then maybe the whole book. But if I didn't feel it in five, I threw it away. I didn't care if someone spent 20 years on it. If they can't get the job, get my attention in five pages. Today's audience, you need to be really hard on those first pages right? Covers. I was going in covers. Everything today is marketed in emails. So I learned this from my friend, Stefan Swanepoel. He went to the bookstore. He took a picture of the business book section and all the best-selling racks. And then when he was looking at covers, he would Photoshop all of the men and to see what stood out and what didn't. And I'll tell you that covers go through trends. And we picked white, one, because it fit the message of the book, but because everything else was black or red. And our book would really stand out on the bookshelves. And we took his idea, and then I printed up the page when I'm searching for books on Amazon around the topic, the search results, and I printed an email from Amazon. And guess what? Some of the images of book covers are like less than an inch tall. And if you aren't designing a book cover and looking at it in that, people may not be able to see your name or the title which is why we've gone to the millionaire real estate agent was a disaster at one inch high, right? Luckily, it has an iconic design that people in the industry know. They call it the red book. But if it's not iconic at a very small level, it's very hard to get people to click on that and therefore discover your book. So acknowledge how books are being shared and don't be afraid to give it away. We've been in Amazon Prime now for four straight months our hardcover sales have dropped every single month because when you can buy the hardcover or get it for free, but our overall number of books being read has like quintupled, right? And so in terms of a larger audience, at the end of the day, if you've written a good book, people talking about your book will sell books for years. So it's an investment is the way I see it. Jay, one phrase that you've used six or seven times today, either the phrase our research or the research how important is research and any well, advice on if it is or how to use it in a book? Well, any, if you ever work with a PR person, they're going to say, why does anybody want to read this book? Right? Why does anybody care? That's like, why do I care? Think about a New York publicist, right? Completely cynical. Why should I care? And then you're going to tell them why this book is important. And then they're going to say, well, what qualifies you to write it? Why should I listen to you? And so... Research is one of the ways you can earn it. I think of research as marketing. 
You know, go back to the millionaire next door. We interviewed 100 millionaires. You had me there. What did you find out? That's Napoleon Hill, isn't it? Didn't he go around doing that? Right? I mean, it's not new, but research is a form of marketing to me. And again, it's a form of staying engaged. When I know the truth about something like habits and I read someone who's got an old version of the truth, I then question things that are around that. Does that make sense? So at least do a Google search around what you're writing about and see, do I have at least the latest information? (laughs) Right? But I think research is good marketing. And I also, like, I just have a personal philosophy. I told you I want people to act on things, right? And so experientially, what 10 amazingly successful people have in common is something that almost anyone can do. Whereas I could not maybe replicate what any individual will do. There are common traits among many people, and that's the reason we do it. And that's like my default mode. I'm going to go talk to 20 people who've done it at a really high level. I'm going to ask them the same questions. I'm going to see where's the commonality because chances are that's something I can do too. Yeah, awesome. Last question. When you think about your future, what kind of images or visions, dreams, goals get you most excited right now when you wake up every day? Um, gosh, it's so hard for me to think beyond like five years. Like that's the last time like we really looked out. The legacy thing for me, because we don't know the charity, I don't know, but I know it's going to involve my kids, my family. I mean, I know that that's always there. Every vision of the future. And lately, I've been at my ranch with our ostrich an awful lot. And I think about retiring someplace in the country where I can write and read. That's like my future and be with my family. I don't know if that's what you wanted me to say, but I don't know what my, the books is part of my legacy. And I get that when I'm writing them. But I do want it to be about something bigger, but I haven't quite figured that out yet, just to be honest with you. That's cool. Well, I want to get it right or think close to right before I die. We think you're doing okay so far. Okay, all right. Yeah, all right. You're doing okay. Jay, thank you. I think no doubt your time with us is going to help us to create quantum leaps in our lives, in our businesses. You've been massively generous today with your wisdom, your time, your heart, your talent. So can we give Jay a huge quantum leap round of applause? It's been awesome. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks for having me, man. Thanks, man. Awesome. Really appreciate it. Really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you. Jay Papazan. Let's give it up. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the Achieve Your Goals podcast and to get access to today's show notes, transcript, and exclusive content from Hal Elrod, visit halelrod.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the Achieve Your Goals podcast. 